and welcome back. They told you they could keep us down. They told you they could beat us, but against all odds, ladies and gentlemen, the Ridley Institute podcast is back for another season of mayhem, uh, or more likely of lightly humored, faintly jocular theological conversation. Cue the fanfare. We're back. Uh, so I'm here with my colleague, my new friend, Mike Niebauer, with uh, what I'm sure will be a fruitful, thought-provoking conversation on Christian mission. Mike has written a unique, I think desperately needed book on Christian mission, published just last month with Lexham Press. The book is entitled Virtuous Persuasion, A Theology of Christian Mission. Uh, well, Mike, you have embraced the fool's errand, my friend, of appearing on the Ridley Institute <laughs> podcast. Perfectly good Thursday afternoon wasted. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, so, Mike, you and I, we don't really know each other uh, yet, but we've both got the privilege of participating in the St. Basil Fellowship for the Center for Pastor Theologians. Shout out to friends at the CPT. However, I should say at the outset, reading this book, uh, as I actually said to you just before we, we started recording, I felt that someone else was excavating the theoretical foundations that hold up some of the intuitions about Christian ministry and mission that I've come to value over the years. You were kind of reading my mind here uh, and saying much more (laughs) cleverly and far more intensively than I could have um, some things which I've kind of suspected um, uh, or or just just had faint inklings. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to this chat. But before we get to Virtuous Persuasion, uh, your book, Mike, maybe you can tell us about your relationship to... Christian mission. Were there certain questions, certain suspicions, intuitions that sparked the idea for this book for you, Mike? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, most of my ministry career has been doing some form of mission. So I was in college, I I was volunteering in the parachurch world and and worked for a parachurch organization for a few years uh, and then uh, had a hand in helping to get some Anglican churches started up as well, and, and a couple of different contexts, you know, college campuses, kind of trendy neighborhoods, nursing homes, Hispanic communities, sort of all these different kind of contexts. And um, so I, I've kind of had um, through those sort of church planting experiences, you're kind of inundated with all of that literature out there. Um, you have the the sort of the practical um, how-to books, and you go to these conferences. You're you're learning all these methods. And then you do have theological formation that's happening both sort of informally and then I was somebody that, that got my theological education while ministering continually too. So I got my my master's at Wheaton College um, and my my doctorate at Duquesne. And so, you know, I I'm have this this practical mission experience um, and I'm getting theological education, but there's this sort of disconnect in that I'm noticing all of these problems in my ministry, in my approach to mission, um, that's sort of fomented by these very practical approaches, um, and not really seeing in the theology I'm reading people that are identifying it, sort of the resources, like like you've said, kind of excavating, like excavating some of these issues. So, you know, for me, it, it, um, a lot of it came down to these very fundamental issues of, you know, I'm worried about Sunday attendance figures, which almost every pastor I know worries about that. So numbers are up. I feel good. Numbers are down. I feel bad. Why is that the case? Is it me? You know, um, and you're struggling with that. Um, you're struggling with that idea of, you know, success being equated to numbers. And then you're just struggling with that general kind of, uh, um, challenge of sharing the gospel with your friends and, you know, dealing with that, the sort of the awkwardness of that or the perceived challenges of that. And like you said, you know, I, I wound up, um, taking coursework in ethics and in that area, I think found at least the resources to do that excavation work. Um, and so that really sort of set me on that path of, I'm going to try to instead of cut to the core, like, let me get down to the bare bones. What are the real philosophical theological underpinnings of some of these approaches to mission that manifest themselves in these these day-to-day issues and problems? And then can I find also within ethics and other places resources to to think differently about mission? Uh, just helping uh, lay listeners in particular to wrap their heads around some concepts. I mean, uh, by the end of this episode, I, I, I hope we're, we'll get to some brass tacks of the book. It's actually, a, a Virtuous Persuasion is, in fact, an extremely practical book, but practical from the standpoint of sort of um, 
actually uncovering the implications of, of, of theological wisdom and then playing it out in, in practice. In order to do that, I think lay listeners are going to need to uh, get a couple of concepts under their belts, right, to wrap their heads around the argument. So, okay, virtuous persuasion, it, the book, it places mission, quite rightly, I think, within a moral framework. And in order to do that, you take advantage of these two, maybe you don't see them as two bodies of thought, I, I guess I currently do, two bodies of thought, virtue ethics, theological ethics. Um, give us a broad introduction to these approaches. Maybe say a word uh, about in what ways these two disciplines are related and in what ways they're distinct from one another. Can you introduce us? Yeah, well, well, virtue ethics um, really um, places human action within the overarching goal of human life. Um, so the idea behind it is that we should be acting according to our, our ends. So whatever the goal of human life is, whatever we're created for, all of our actions should should be done in accordance with that goal. Um, and that's certainly different from a, a very popular understanding of ethics, which is just tell me if something's right or wrong. Because, you know, there are plenty of decisions that we make in life that aren't aren't about being right or wrong. So do I, you know, do I take 30 minutes off of work to play with my daughter or not? Well, that's not necessarily a right or wrong question. Um, that's a that's a question of, you know, what are my role? What are my responsibilities of a, as a father and a pastor? And how does that fit into my overarching life? And so um, and then within that, there's this idea, too, that as we act in accordance with our ends, we develop virtues, meaning our our character is changed in a in a good way. And those virtues help us to act well in other areas of life as well. So. You know, this is, you know, if so, for instance, the virtue of temperance, if I'm somebody who um, learns how to, you know, eat an appropriate amount of food and not overeat, I'm probably going to develop also I have some of those skills to also not play too many video games, for instance, that this virtue of temperance, as I cultivate it in one area of life, it, it has an impact on other areas of my life. Um, but. But virtue ethics, you know, originally we're we're talking about uh, an idea that's in, in the pagan world, and you know, principally people like Aristotle. But the question with virtue ethics is always, as people would probably already guess, is well, well what is the goal of life? And um, Christianity comes along and says that all these pagan ways of understanding um, virtue fail because they don't have the right goal in life. There's a flaw in any of them. So. Um, Theological ethics is, at its core, theological ethics is just, you know, ethics that is God-centered, and God is the the source and the constraint of all ethics. But particularly for virtue ethics, it's the goal is um, Aquinas calls it the beatific vision. We can call it union with Christ. It's it's being with Jesus in eternity, and and in Christian understanding of that, Jesus is, as we say, the way, truth, and the life. So he's he's both the goal and the way to get there, too. And so a theological approach to virtue ethics would say Jesus is the goal, he's the way, and, you know, um, Scripture, in a sense, both guides us but also constrains our choices as well. So this virtue-oriented approach, you say it serves the missionary because it answers three questions questions faced by Christian missionaries on a daily basis. I mean, to some extent, faced by all Christians, but in particular, faced by uh, missionaries, right? The problems of distinction, agency, and persuasion. Uh, Mike, can you introduce us briefly to each of those problems, distinction, agency, persuasion? I think it's probably easiest to think of these in sort of practical question terms. So distinction would be what activities are are missional activities and what mish, what activities aren't? Mm. And this is for the very practical, you know, um, problem of I only have so many hours in the day. So if my job is a missionary and I have an hour, do I spend it sharing the gospel with a friend? Do I do I use it, you know, serving the poor, for instance? And so, it, it we have to sort of decide well what is mission, what isn't, and it's mm. also important because we whenever you def 
define something, you can also define how to do it well or poorly. Mm. So this is sort of the question of what is mission, what isn't. Um, this this issue of agency is really two different areas. One is um, what am I doing versus what is God doing? So am I sort of out on my own proclaiming the kingdom of God? Is it all God working through me? Is it some sort of combination? But then also, um, what role do the people who hear my words exercise in accepting the Christian message and rejecting it and modifying it? Um, and then the issue of persuasion, this is probably the one that's most familiar to people is um, how do I how do I evangelize without manipulating or coercing? Mm. So I I want to persuade people of the the truth of the resurrected Christ, and I want to do it in a way that respects their agency, that gives them that ability. I don't want to usurp that. So what is that sort of horizon, that frontier line between persuasion and coercion? And I think these are things that if anyone is engaged in um, – mission and ministry, they're probably bumping up into these issues all, at least on a week-to-week basis. So the problem of distinction, what on earth actually is mission? Out of all the activities we could be doing, uh, which one do we distinguish as being a particularly missional activity? Uh, agency, um, who's really who's really acting? Is it is it me? Is it God? How do we understand the, the agent of, of mission? persuasion, how do we persuade without manipulating? Would that be a, a fair way of, okay, all right. I, I, That's think, great. I think I've got those under my <laughs> under my belt. Now, each of those problems, distinction, agency, persuasion, each of those problems you see as being addressed, right, by certain contemporary approaches to Christian mission. And I think here's where your book really gets juicy. Okay, so I, I responded, <laughs> as I said to you before we started, really viscerally to this book. I mean, like more vis. there is more sort of uh, black and red ink, um, uh, not against, not, not on your book, by the way. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a great book. Um, but I responded, I mean, there was more fist pumping and more boo hissing, right, than with any other book I've read in a long time. And um, you deal with Alistair McIntyre so, a lot, so I, I fully recognize the irony of how kind of emotivist that sounds. But, but it, um, anyway, so a lot of that more, critical energy was provoked in me by your earlier chapters in which you introduced these three contemporary models of Christian mission. So I'd love to just kind of spend a little bit of time looking at each one of those models in turn. And the first model is, is what you call mission as missio dei, or the mission of God. You start with this missio dei model of mission. Introduce us to the missio dei model and tell us about the which of those three problems it particularly fails to address. Sure. Well, the the Missio Dei model, as you said, it's Latin for mission of God. And it's this movement, and it's reacting, I think, justifiably in response to some of the excesses of Christian missionaries. So the the idea is sort of Christian missionaries are, um, you know, they're particularly in colonial enterprises, they're, they're being coercive, um, they're doing sort of terrible things in the name of mission, in the name of Jesus, and they are sort of taking on, in a sense, taking on the agency of God for themselves. And so um, there's a movement here to kind of, um, in reaction to that, to instead conceive of mission as as God's prerogative, and and really more broadly even to speak of sort of the movement of God in the world, and that's what mission is. And so in this sense, all theology is missionary theology, because it's always the, the study of, of God's activity in the world. Um, and it's, again, it, it's meant to sort of safeguard, um, you know, missionaries from thinking they can claim it on their own. And it, it's rooted somewhat in, in the work of Karl Barth. A, a lot of people that profess this aren't necessarily Barthian scholars, but um, they're drawing a lot on on Barth's understanding of divine versus human agency in, in nature and grace. Trickle-down um, Barthianism, right? <laughs> yes, that's a very good way of, of putting it. Um, and so, but of course, the problems with this are um, you're kind of swinging the pendulum in the other direction. So um, if mission is the mission of God and it's all of God's movement in the world, well, um, one is you, you're kind of saying mission is everything. So um, if I'm a missionary, I could, you know, I could play worship music. 
I could work for a nonprofit and I could just say, well, I'm doing mission. Um, it also seems to give very little real responsibility for human beings. I mean, you see this obviously in Bart's thought quite a bit because, you know, in Bart, almost all church activity is, uh, I call it, it's kind of like, um, you know, a new, uh, a newspaper man reporting on the bombing of Hiroshima. Like everybody's going to hear about this news. They're just, just going to tell it to you two or three hours beforehand. And so it's almost like in Bart, the, the activity of the church is sort of just announcing and telling people what Jesus has done just a few hours before it's going to happen. And so there's this, um, there's this sense in which, um, human beings really don't, don't have to do a lot and they don't really accomplish a whole lot. And whatever they do, as long as it's sort of in accordance with God, we can, we can call it mission. And then, of course, uh, obviously, this creates all sorts of hosts of issues of then you can't really define mission. You you can't really describe what constitutes good mission from poor mission. And then there are these, you know, in missiology terms, you you kind of create this incessant debate over, you know, evangelism versus social justice. And you see this playing out in very popular parlance as you're, you know, if you're excited about one, you have to be, you're, you're mad at the other. And you, you kind of see this sort of interminable ping-ponging happening. Kind of the, like the John Stott, Billy Graham, Lausanne thing, right? Like that was the framework. Mm -hmm. When I read that chapter, I thought, okay, this is, this is how I currently think of this issue. Um, mm -hmm. Which, yep. Um, yep. yeah, props to you for sort of <laughs> giving me a new way of, of uh, looking at that. Yeah. So I, I think that's really just the best way of understanding that model. And it, it, it's helpful in, in a lot of ways in that um, certainly it's helpful at the time for breaking missionary out of a very sort of practical, um, solely sort of mechanistic view. And, and you know, and we again to this later when we talk about the, the church growth model, but but the the dialogue and missio day models are, do a good job of sort of buttressing against some of the excesses of that model. Um, and certainly the the prerogative is is God's. So I think they're right in that sense. And, you know, as a Protestant, obviously you have the, the preeminence of grace uh, always. So there's there's very good things for it, but it sort of has these unintended consequences that it, it can't really seem to break out of. All right. So first model mission as missio day real real issue with the problem of distinction right what is mission but also an agency problem linked in there mm -hmm. um where Karl Barth may be one of if not the source of the mischief on 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 this <laughs> thesis okay let's park that for a second second model mission is growth we're going to come back to these I just want to kind of get them out for listeners mission is growth second model you give the example again lots of red ink uh, <laughs> uh, what's going on with the mission is growth model and what's the main problem that's not being addressed here? Well, I, I think what, what this model is attempting to do, and I, and again, I, I want to highlight some of the contributions that each one of these models make is there is the sense of wanting to take seriously the task of mission and wanting to do that well. And so, you know, if, if I'm a missionary and I'm called to evangelize, well, how do I do that? Well, how do I do that even effectively? What does that look like? Um, and so I, I think that's a, a good and important thing to to think about. And just like any other vocation that people is a part of, you, you want to think through doing those things well. Um, the challenge, though, is that the, the definition of doing mission well is numerical growth. So um, essentially, the the more converts, the the better the mission. Um, and there are a whole host of problems that that come up when you define the ends of mission that way, uh, and you, you kind of reduce people to numbers. Uh, but uh, one of the problems is that um, if you're if you're successful in this model of mission, if you've come up with sort of this model, this method that that kind of guarantees that more people can will show up to something and it's replicable. Anyone can use it. What you're really saying is that you have a kind of control or mastery over human beings. Um, you know, all mission is about just sort of finding that magic formula, you know, having the, we all, we all deal with this, having that right program. You read a book that says, I did this, my church grew by this amount. Therefore you go and do the same. And so the idea is sort of, it, it almost turns mission into kind of a, a, a conjuring, say the right words, do the right program, 
and the read Jim Collins or Lencioni and uh, yes. And, uh, yes. <laughs> Not, 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 not to knock those guys. I'm just an uh, example of, all right, we've got these sort of tried and true laws. Now let's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it borrows a lot from the business world too, and in, in, in business management world too, in that regard. Um, but um, the problems as, as well with this approach, one is if you're successful, you're kind of saying people can be manipulated um, just like you could, you know, manipulate sheep or something like that. Um but the second problem with it is that um, ultimately any of those formulas, any of those blueprints, any of those methods are going to fail in the long run because people aren't sheep. Um, they can't be controlled and manipulated. Um, and so you know, the best way to look at this is, you know, all of those church growth books that you see out there that tell you this system, put this system into place, implement it. Here are the results. If any one of them actually worked with a kind of replicable success, it would sell millions of copies and everyone would buy it. Everyone would use it and everybody's church would grow. But the problem is none of them are ever really successful, certainly in the long run, because people can't be controlled. So that's why one book comes along, here are the methods, people try it, they don't work. Somebody else comes along and there's another one. Um, and so I, I think the church growth model, um, you're kind of stuck in this sort of environment of constantly saying, do this, do that, implement this program. Um, all the while, you're you're kind of learning to, to treat people like statistics. So in our second model, mission is growth. I mean, we're here. Is it is it that we're more running into the problem of well, we're running into a host of problems, right? And you draw on McIntyre to it, this is this is sort of managerial land in which McIntyre's uh, sorry, lots of big words, sorry, listener, but you know McIntyre's managerial uh, culture—it's where his emotivist lives, right? The person who sort of goes with where he feels. So there are all there there are all sorts of problems with this. Is is the main sort of um, problem missiologically that it runs into the problem of agency? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I think what you're you're essentially saying is that human beings aren't the way people become Christians doesn't really have anything to do with whether they decide to follow Christ. It has to do with whether I have come up with the special formula to get them to follow Christ. Ah, right, right, right. Okay. So, okay. All right. You know, so you, you know, I come up with a program. You know, I put it together and 40 new people show up. And so, you know, I can say to myself, well, okay, this is how 40 new people come to Christ. But I'm not actually investigating what's actually going on with those people in their hearts. There, Maybe they're they're either showing up because they feel guilty. You know, maybe maybe they're showing up for some random reason. And so but I take it upon myself a sense, the, the knowledge and the ownership of their agency, because I'm saying I have figured out how to to get you to come to church, to get you to become a Christian. Mm. There's a hidden encouragement, I think, for the discouraged pastor there, right? Who's saying, but I did everything right. And you say, well, what, what do you, what do you mean? (laughs) You did everything right, you know? Um, (laughs) All right. So let's, let's pause. So we've, we've had the Missio Dei model. We've had the growth model and we've seen the problems there. Let's talk just for a minute about the third model, mission as dialogue. So What's the problem going on here? I think we've only got one problem left, which is the problem of persuasion, right? So t- <laughs> tell us about the model. Tell us how it kind of fails to address the problem of persuasion. Well, I think um, this model is, uh, I think it's really important in many ways. One, I think it's a model that is is the one that's mostly rejected by evangelical or orthodox Christians. And I think rightfully so, a, a lot of its main proponents are um, tend to be Christian pluralists or Christian universalists, not not necessarily all of them, but I think the model is helpful in that it, I think it's the only one to really raise the ethical question in mission. Mm. So um, it really is the one to, to stand back and say, what are we doing with our words? And um, in the process of being on mission, in the process of of proclaiming the gospel, are we being coercive or manipulative mm. when we do these things? Um, are we, you know, are we usurping somebody else's agency? Are we giving them the space um, to accept or reject the Christian message? But but the problem is their solution is to conceive of mission essentially as a kind of 
um, interreligious dialogue um, with no sort of in, in attempts at intentional persuasion. Mm. So mission is just sort of, let me tell you about what I believe. And now you can tell me about what you believe. And yeah, maybe maybe minds are changed at some regard, but we're not in any way trying to to tell you, I, I want you to change what you believe, or I want you to think differently, or I invite you to think differently. So it's an attempt to sort of get rid of persuasion altogether yeah. in the name of not wanting to be coercive or manipulative. Uh, of course, the problem with this is that you cannot get rid of persuasion. Um, <laughs> it is it is part of the human experience. Um, any one of us, if I state an opinion, I am uh, exerting some sort of per persuasive force on you. We always experience this when somebody says they, you know, they dislike a TV show that we haven't seen. That that changes the way we think of that show, even if we've never actually watched the show. Yeah, it exerts this kind of persuasive force, and so um, essentially, what what happens is is that what you're really doing is essentially just telling Christians to, to really stop trying to intentionally share the gospel. And all you're doing is just giving space for all these other people to persuade in other ways. Mm. And so you know, if we're not persuading people with the gospel, well, that's just people are going to be persuaded instead by people trying to get their money or get their vote or any of these other ways. So the question is not, the problem is not persuasion. The problem is how do we persuade well? Mm. in a way that's honoring to God, that's in a way that honors our audience. Um, so persuasion is not necessarily enemy. It's it's more of how we do that well, which which the mission as dialogue um, model can't really answer. And because most of its proponents um, uh, are more committed to a kind of religious pluralism that um, really makes persuasion really unnecessary. Mike, another thing I found about interesting about the mission is dialogue model is that you have, so you have this big rejection of, you know, what would be called ethnocentrism, right? But this embracing of, I think you used this word regnocentrism, like the very, key, very keen on kingdom of God talk as a way of dodging aspersions of secular interlocutors who want to say the whole Christian enterprise is a colonial ruse. Just parenthetically, before we move on, it just strikes me that Throughout the history of Christian thought, the kingdom is explicitly identified with the spirit. So you have Gregory of Nyssa saying, quote, the Holy Spirit is the kingdom. <laughs> um, so there is a there is a funny, I wonder, you can answer this or not as you like, but is there ever in the mission as dialogue uh, camp, it seems like the, there could be some kind of talking out of both sides of our mouths. On the, on the one side, we want to sort of put ourselves at a remove, for, emphasize that the church is not the real deal, it's the kingdom we're really after. Um, on the other hand, at least in the, you know, in the tradition, there's a really tight link <laughs> between, um, as it were, uh, the, the kingdom and the one who constitutes the church. Um, mm -hmm. Does the question make sense? Or does the observation yeah. make sense? Yeah, and I, I think it, it's a it's a good question. So, it, with the mission as dialogue approach, the kingdom of God is is usually defined as sort of all of humanity, not just the church. So it's it's you know building up. We could say building up godliness everywhere, and so you know we are doing that. Muslims are doing that. People of other faiths are doing whenever they're doing sort of good things they're they're contributing to the kingdom of God. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's done in a way because there, there wants to be sort of a respect for other religions, but, you know, at the same time, there is, it can be just as offensive because you're, you know, uh, sometimes Muslims don't want to be told that they're doing Christian work. Um, that would be, potentially offensive. You're, you're kind of informing other people that, oh, actually, we're all working for the same thing. Well, you're, you, what do you speak to the people who don't actually believe that? Um, and so there's a there's a bit of um, a, a, a way in which there it's still undergirded, I think, by, a, I would say, a, a very Western mentality, if I could use those words, that we're still kind of informing people 
um, as to what to think and, and what to believe. We just think we're being more benevolent because we're being sort of more universalistic. But I, I do think there are elements of this in other models. I mean, I think you could construe the mission of God model in this way, too, if you just think everything good is part of God's mission. But I, I do think that even if this model is, is more soundly rejected, I think Christians on a very day-to-day level act as if this were the case in the sense of, well, hey, I, I like this person over here. Um, you know, I'm just going to kind of hope they become a Christian someday or hope they get to heaven. But I really like them, so I, I don't want to have any like uncomfortable conversations with them. And I think that um, that's a very sort of practical way that, that people actually live out this model, even if they might be pressed on, they, they might not be sort of religious pluralists. Um, they might not be universalists, but it, it does manifest itself in that way. And just sort of a very, a very general uncomfortableness with intentional persuasion. So we've got our three models, Mike. So now let's, let's get to your constructive proposal. Okay. So you've, uh, critiqued my term, these half-baked models, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and you have, um, you've then, you then turn to show how this new model actually integrates all of their concerns and meets them more adequately than, than the models themselves do. And, and this approaches itself part of what you're teaching in the book. And I don't want us to miss that. Um, so take us uh, just briefly, if you would, so we can kind of get to the meat, take us through your methodology and why it matters, not just as an abstract argument, but as a concrete practice which missionaries can imitate. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sure. The The thesis of my constructive ap- approach is, um, and I'll uh, probably just easier for me just to recite it. So Christian mission is best construed as specific activities, proclamation and gathering that develop virtue in its practitioners, moving them toward their ultimate goal of partaking in the glory of God. And so this conception of mission, it, the the goal of it is, you know, a couple of different things. One is, uh, I, I I want the, this conception of mission to be in accordance with Scripture. So, as a as an Anglican and an Evangelical Anglican, you know, uh, abiding by all of our pronouncements of Scripture, as we see Scripture as the the norming norm, which norms all other norms. So, you, you, it's conception that that wants to be true and in accordance with Scripture, sort of have a fit with Scripture. Um, it also, it, I hope it's also something that gives people as it's grounded in ethics, the tools to think about mission well, to give a scheme for reflecting on their actions. And then third, I, I wanted to address those above issues. And so if you look at that, that thesis description, it, it addresses those issues in a number of different ways. One is, um, the goal of mission is not sort of numerical conversion or even even conversion, the ultimate goal is glorifying God, um, which one, it, it protects against coercion and manipulation because the goal is not to win over somebody to the gospel at all costs. It's to honor God with our words. Um, two, it, it by describing it as distinct activities, well, one, we're talking about, again, it's getting at this problem of distinction. We're really describing two things so we can describe things, how they're done better or well. We're, we're giving people the tools to say, yeah, we should take mission seriously, as the mission as growth model says. Um, but ultimately, the hope of it being the, the glory of God, it, it prevents us from, um, we could say, using some of those lower ends those lower goals of missions to try to drive the cart. Um, and so the the goal is we could say, I'm going to do the best I can to proclaim the gospel to gather new churches, the best I can in the eyes of God, whether that person accepts or rejects the gospel, whether that person ever shows up to church or not. So you're able to, to lend to other people uh, honor other people's agency in accepting or rejecting because your goal ultimately is not conversion, but honoring God. So in order to have this right understanding of virtue, as you say, you need a right that is a, a Christian understanding of human agency. And so I don't want to get technical here, but I want to give folks the basic stuff that Thomas Aquinas helps us to understand. Um, 
and 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 I think that is as you say uh, on page one twenty two that human agents act through displacement, whereas God can act without displacement. Um, in other words, divine and human action, finite and infinite action, they don't compete. They are utterly in harmony. Um, and I'm, I'm deliberately not saying compatible <laughs> because I don't, mm-hmm. sure. don't like the language of libertarianism and compatibilism here. But um, but they are in they are in harmony. So uh, can you just give us just a minute, Mike, on um, uh, people who want to dive into the deep end can go and read Austin Ferrer's Finite and Infinite. But maybe just for the purpose of this podcast, we could talk about the, the kind of um, the brass tacks. What does this mean for Christian moral agency in general? I think on a very practical level. People sometimes make the mistake of thinking of God as just a really big, powerful human being. So we act through displacement, meaning when we move in the world, other things have to kind of get out of the way, right? My my body isn't a movable object. I occupy time and space. When I do things, you know, it there's kind of a zero sum game. It comes at the expense of something else. I can I can't be in two places at once. I have to move in one place. Whereas God, when He acts is not limited in that way. So he can be everywhere and one specific place at, at a time. And so what this means is that, um, you know, if, you know, if me and another friend are, you know, working on an art project together, you could probably try to distill out, okay, I did this part of the project. My friend did this other part and we worked together on this. But when God works in and through us, you can't break it down in percentages. Because, well, one, God is always working at us because he's sustaining every single breath we take. And as as Christians, you know, we can only get to know Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of God, which is which is functioning outside of us. And so what I think an appropriate understanding of this relation does is it allows us to give up that desire to parse out what percentage of what we're doing is is ours alone and what percentage is God's. We can we can sort of accept the the beauty of this harmony of I get to to work in concert with in harmony with God. There's a um there's a a song lyric I think that actually gets at this pretty well. Um a guy named Billy Bragg, a British singer-songwriter. Yeah, yeah. He's great a, album you know, with um, Wilco. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So you know Wilco. So he says uh the temptation to take this, the precious things we have apart to see how they work must be resisted for they never fit together again. So, and then it's about his love for, so he says, must I paint you a picture about the way I feel? So it's about the love he has for a woman, but there's a sense in which it, you know, if I, um, you know, if my wife tells me she loves me and my response is, okay, well, that's 20%. Well, you are raised with these values and you see these values used to me. It's 20% the you know, synapses firing in my brain. You know, if I try to break it down that way, I'm actually doing a disservice to that expression of love. Because um, I'm trying to sort of parse out something that can't fully be parsed out. And I think whenever we, we think about the way we work, one, God always has that preeminence. It, 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 it's always the prerogative of, of God. So there's always that undergirding. But we can just sort of accept the beauty of the fact that we get to we get to move in harmony with God, that God gets to work through us. And, you know, God created us as people with these abilities to choose, to exercise our agency. And we can thank God for that without having to try and get into these sort of squabbles of breaking it down into percentages. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's really helpful. So if we, then let's stick with Aquinas for a minute with Thomas. Um, and then we also learn something else, right? Which is the telos, the end goal of the Christian life. And you say that framework is necessary if we want to understand why Christians think that the virtues are so important. You could have a pagan virtue approach, but then you have a pagan virtue approach. <laughs> so what does Aquinas say about the goal of human life? And why, if that's true, do the virtues actually matter for those of us, and, and especially those of us kind of in the evangelical world in which you and I are both operating, where we don't tend to, we don't tend to use this language? Mm-hmm. Why, should, why, sure. should we, why should we give it a hearing? 
Well, for Aquinas, he, he describes it a, a number of different ways at the end um, in his works. The beatific vision is is the way that it's described m- most often. And for Aquinas, though, vision is not simply optical. Um, vision in this term means both sort of sight and love and knowledge. It's the equivalent of sort of looking into the eyes of our of our lover. Um, and of course, this is very biblical. This is what's happening at the end of the Bible in Revelation. The 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 point, the end of the Bible is us seeing Jesus face to face and our names being written on his forehead. So it's sight here is equated to love, knowledge, and intimate union with Christ. Um, and so this is this is our goal. This is what all of our actions should should conform to. Um, but in, in terms of the virtues, uh, again, with virtue ethics, as we move towards our goal, we develop virtues that enable us to act better in other situations as well. So even something like mission, if we proclaim the gospel well in a way that's honoring to God, um, in order to do that, we have to develop some virtues. So in our particular environment, the virtue of temperance is important because we live in a, a world of excess. I've got a you know, resist the urge to, you know, be on my phone all day um, in order to actually pray for my friend who doesn't know Christ. Well, if I do that, I'm developing temperance that will actually enable me to to be a more temperate person in other areas of my life. And, you know, the, the concept here, I think, is sort of the unity of the virtues. But we, we, we know this sort of practically, too. Um, I think C.S. Lewis has that great quote about, you know, if I love God above my earthly dearest— I actually wound up loving my earthly dearest more because I have the, the priorities in line. So this idea is if I'm loving God, I actually learn how to love other people in other situations well. And so one of the points of my my book is that conceiving of proclaiming the gospel, gathering new churches is just one of those activities where we learn to love God more and that that enables us to um, to be more virtuous people in other areas of our Christian life as well. So when you say, I mean, you make what might to some be a controversial claim that acts like serving the poor, economic redistribution, social work, they don't constitute, quote, core missional activities, right? And and I, although I don't think this is what you imply, I mean, it, it could be read as saying that they don't, uh, in I think the words of one four, page 146, shape a virtuous Christian existence, at least not in the same way as, proclamation and gathering. But when you, I mean, when you put it the way that you just did, I mean, uh, the reason it seemed, you seem to be saying, tell me if I'm getting you wrong, the reason that these things don't shape a virtuous Christian existence in the same way as proclamation and gathering is because they don't necessarily foster the love of God, which gives, you know, provides the form and the, and the ground for love of neighbor is that is basically something like that what you're saying well it's it's a, a little different in that um my point with these distinctions i think are are serving the poor economic resolution so all these are very important activities that christians should do mm-hmm. um they are also though activities that um you don't need to be a christian to do mm-hmm. um so they can develop virtue if they're doing it with that ultimate goal of, of glorifying Christ. Um, uh, but, um, and so just like any other activity in the, in this world, any, any activity that I do with that goal in mind has that ability to develop, develop virtue. Um, the, my, my reasons I think for choosing proclamation and gathering are uh, again, yeah, those are those two activities though, that are, they are distinctly Christian. Yeah. So I can, I can work in a soup kitchen with a Muslim friend of mine, but afterwards we can't go door to door proclaiming the resurrected Christ. Yeah. Um, and we certainly can't then gather together and partake in the Eucharist together. Um, so one of those things I, I can sort of do without being a Christian, but one of those things that in the act of doing it itself, it's explicitly Christian. So there's no secular proclamation of the resurrected Christ or Mm. a a secular partaking of the the Eucharist. Um, And so, you know, my reason for sort of thinking of them this way is um, one is that these are the two activities. They say they're distinctly Christian. It's also sort of what you see in the book of Acts. Um, But also, um, 
I think it's good. I think as Anglicans, we probably understand the the understanding of role and the functions associated with that role. Well, so we have the threefold order of deacon, priest, and bishop. And the idea behind those roles is we're going to give some distinction to these occupations within the life of the church so that we all have an expectation of what what people who occupy these roles should do. Mm. And we have some sort of tradition to say, this is what a good priest looks like. This is what a good deacon looks like. And I would argue that's exactly what's actually happening in the book of Acts with the formation of the diaconate. Mm. So they're saying in there, hey, serving the poor is important. It's so important that we need to create a separate order of deacons so that they can focus on doing that well And as the apostles, we can focus on preaching the gospel well. Um, And so we're providing more of that distinction, not because we we think one is is lesser than another, but we want to say this is what it means to do these things well. And of course, you know, the irony of all this is that just because something is defined by a role doesn't mean that they're the only people that do it. And so Stephen is one of the first deacons, but then he goes out and proclaims the gospel. There are lots of questions that I would like to ask about these particular themes of um, or practices, virtuous practices of proclamation and gathering, but I don't want to cheapen them by taking too short of a time. Uh, I mean, we would need to do a whole other episode, I think, at this point to really dig into either of those with the, the depth that they deserve. So people go and read Mike's book, but um, but maybe just the final question to kind of pick back up on that on that axe illusion that you just made. Lots of this of virtue ethical thought emphasizes the importance of virtuous exemplars for growth in uh, in virtue. I mean, a number of books over the last several years, and you know probably far better than I do. So in the book of Acts, right, um, the Christian seeking to grow in missionary maturity has got a number of uh, virtuous exemplars. I just read um, to my kids, uh, Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer this morning. I mean, you've got them, but seems that Luke sets up the narrative in such a way as to draw into particular focus two exemplars, Peter and Stephen. Uh, so I want to ask a very mischievous question, Mike, uh, to, to draw us to a conclusion. <laughs> is it more virtuous to emulate Peter or Stephen? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give the uh, I'll give the standard cop out of saying both. <laughs> but um, I, I would say in in the Bible, um, Peter exemplifies the penultimate goal of mission hmm. and Stephen, the ultimate goal. Wow. Okay. Go on. So the penultimate goal. So of course it's what we aim at. So of course, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody else, you, you want them to, to become Christian. That's a good thing to aim at. Um, and so you're, as you're thinking about what to say, you're thinking about your words. You want to think through in ways in which how can I present this in the best way possible? Mm. Um, and in hoping as you're praying for them, you know, getting that picture of what it would be like for them to to turn and know Christ and have their life changed for eternity. So that's your penultimate goal. But your ultimate goal is to, to glorify God. And what that means is that you're you're willing to even let go of um, that ability for them to be converted in order to honor God well with your words. So Mm. I'm not going to try to convert them at all costs. Uh, I'm not going to lie about parts of the Christian faith. I'm not going to, you know, shy away from different, from, from harder points or not. Um, And so Peter and Stephen both do an, an excellent job. And I think both of their speeches, it should be very clear that they're, they're speeches that require preparation and thought and prayer. And they are highly persuasive speeches. They are they are trying to convince people that Jesus is alive and, you know, God can and, and must be known through Jesus Christ. Um, obviously, Peter sort of gets that penultimate goal because thousands of people convert, right? And this is a, a, an incredible thing. But I would argue, and I argue in the book, Stephen actually gets the higher goal. He gets sort of the ultimate prize Mm. because even though he gets stoned to death, so, you know, for the growth model, he's a failure or, (laughs) you know, there's minus one numerical growth. Um, 
And, you know, the dialogue is why well, he's too offensive. You know, he's violating sensibilities. But he gets that vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Mm. Um, and so um, ultimately, our goal should be to emulate Stephen in the sense of we want to perform mission to the best of our abilities, even when people are picking up stones uh, against us. Um, and so, you know, in some ways we can we can rejoice in those times in which thousands of people convert through our words. Uh, I have not had that kind of experience before, but if it happened, I would rejoice. Um, but I, I think what I want to challenge people in the book more than anything else is to really be willing to emulate Stephen. Am, am I willing to just say what I want more than anything else is to honor God with my words, with my persuasive speech? to get closer to Jesus with the every time I share the gospel and then let the chips fall where they may as far as what that response is like for my audience. Thank you, Mike. Um, listener, uh, particularly if you have any role in the practice of Christian mission yourself, as indeed we all do if we know and love the Lord Jesus, but uh, particularly those of us who do it, um, uh, who are involved in any kind of vocational way, uh, I'd encourage you to get a copy of Mike Niedebauer's uh, new book with Lexham Press, Virtuous Persuasion, A Theology of Christian Mission. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for the kickoff to our second season of the Ridley Institute podcast. Mike, thanks especially. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much, Sam. Really appreciate it being on. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a review. Uh, favorable, please. Any unfavorable comments can go straight to Mike's podcast. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> Please don't do that. Uh, but do check out uh, Mike's podcast, This We Believe, for some really rich reflections on the essential texts of the Christian faith. Uh, and if you are on the hunt for resources on Christian discipleship, learn more about the Ridley Institute, too. Ridley exists to deepen the maturity of Christian discipleship through the equipping of the church, lay and ordained. To learn more about theological training at the Ridley Institute or to locate discipleship resources for the strengthening and edification of your local church, come see us at RidleyInstitute.com. Join us again in two weeks' time. We've got a great lineup for the fall. Looking forward to conversations with, among others, Dr. Abigail Favale on her recent book, The Genesis of Gender, with Dr. Paul Copen on his forthcoming book, Is God a Vindictive Bully, with Professor Teresa Morgan on the first volume of a projected trilogy, The New Testament and the Theology of Trust, and with Dr. D.C. Schindler on his forthcoming work, second also of a projected trilogy, Retrieving Freedom, The Christian Appropriation of Classical Tradition, not to mention a fresh New Parker Society installment with Alice and Jake back later in October, dedicated to the great English reformer, John Bradford. Lots to come, friends. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Forniker. And this has been the Ridley Institute Podcast.